When addiction is talked about in the church, it is so easy to default to the plague of pornography. However, so many are struggling with substance abuse such as alcohol, narcotics, methamphetamines, fentanyl, and more intense substances. And these aren't issues for only those we might label as druggies who are in and out of jail. These issues impact those who appear most normal at church. Not to mention the domino effect that a substance abuse addiction can have on a marriage, family, and even a ward. That's why we've put together the Recovering Saints Virtual Conference, where we have 20-plus authors, medical doctors, addiction specialists, and even those in recovery sharing their perspectives in order to help us as Latter-day Saint leaders be better prepared to minister to those suffering through and overcoming addiction. Recovery is real even for those considered too far gone. Help is available and we can assist those struggling to find it. To see all the details of the Recovering Saints virtual conference and to register to attend virtually for free, find the link in the show notes or visit leadingsaints.org recovering. Hey, you heard that right. Recovering Saints is happening. I'll tell you what, I've been putting this virtual conference off for so many months. And I'm just going to put a date on the calendar and get it done because I am holding back such valuable content that you're going to love. You can just find all the details at leadingsaints.org slash recovering. Again, that's leadingsaints.org slash recovering. We'll put the link in the show notes to make it really easy on you. A big shout out to Kelly Thompson, who's been behind the scenes helping me formulate, helping me organize, helping me interview and getting this great resource that will be another addition to, I think this is number 10 of the virtual conferences that we've done. And so this week and next week, we're going to feature a interview, a presentation that is a part of the Recovering Saints virtual conference. And this week, it's Joseph Grenny. Now, if you're not familiar with Joseph Grenny, you're probably not that into leadership content, but I'd love to introduce you to him. If not, uh, he's been on the podcast before early on, and he is phenomenal. He is the co-author of New York Times bestselling books such as Crucial Conversations, Crucial Accountability, change anything and crucial influence, just remarkable stuff. So those books were really in the beginning to help me understand that I got a passion for leadership and the research they've put into these books is phenomenal. So anytime I get a chance to sit down with Joseph Granny, I jump on it. Now he also has in his personal story, he has a son that went through an extreme story of substance abuse and he talks a lot about it in his presentation. Again, this is a visual presentation though. I think it will work quite well for the podcast, but uh, if you want to see the video presentation, definitely go check out the leadingsaints.org slash recovering, sign up for free, and uh, that way you'll be able to see the video presentation of this as well. So July 11th, it's going to start. We have several presentations there that are so valuable. Definitely don't miss it, and it's for free, so why would you miss it? So go to leadingsaints.org slash recovering. So here is the presentation by Joseph Grenny titled, Joining Moroni's War on Addiction. Welcome back to another session of the Recovering Saints Virtual Conference. And today I get to welcome in Joseph Crenny. How are you, Joseph? I'm doing great. Happy to be with you, Kurt. Yeah, you know, I've been a, a fan of many of your, your books and the organizations you've started through Crucial Conversations to Influencer and whatnot. And uh, it's fun to, to have another conversation with you about uh, a little bit different topic, but one that's, that's close to your heart. So maybe put yourself in into context and introduce yourself for maybe those that aren't familiar with you and your work. And then... Uh, Let's jump into your presentation. 
Sure. So uh, my professional background, I'm a co-founder of an organization called Crucial Learning. My training is in social science. So I spent 35 years studying why people do what they do and how to help them change. Out of that research, I've co-authored a number of best-selling books, Crucial Conversations, Influencer, Crucial Accountability, Change Anything, along with a number of smaller books. And then uh, the one that I'll be referring to today as well. Secondly, a uh, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from birth. Uh, parents are converts. And we've raised our six children in Utah. And some of the struggles that we've had with two of our boys who got heavily involved into drugs and into the criminal lifestyle are uh, some of what brought me to the conversation that we'll have today. Also co-founder of the, the Other Side Academy and the Other Side Village that I'll refer to a little bit in my remarks. Awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's jump into it. and. Uh... And I'll come back at the end when you're done and ask some follow-up questions. So Good. Thank you. So the, the topic today I call Moroni's War on Addiction. And uh, the topic, the title will make sense as we proceed. I'll be drawing some of my remarks from memoirs, basically, that I wrote along with one of my sons in a book called Moroni's War on Addiction. And uh, it's an extremely meaningful section of the Book of Mormon to me that I believe was specifically added for its relevance to our time, far more than in the time of Captain Moroni. So uh, that'll become more obvious as we proceed. There are a couple of other resources that I would recommend that you have available. These are both articles available for free online at Meridian Magazine. One is an article that I authored a few months back called, Are We Losing? A Gospel Perspective on Imperfect Families. Some of the principles I'll share today, I think, will connect with that article. A second called Jacob's Answer to Parental Despair, The Olive Tree and the Antichrist. Again, available at Meridian Magazine. If you just Google those names, the titles of the article, along with my name, that should bring those up for you. And I hope those are useful resources to you as uh, both you comfort and uh, counsel parents and youth and others who are struggling in the church, but also probably for you and your own families as well. So my purpose today is to draw you into a deeper study of the Book of Mormon about a tactical topic that you and I care deeply about. There is intense, specific, profound wisdom available that I think few of us have seen in the past that I hope to draw attention to. And my goal is not to persuade you that what I got out of reading those sections of the Book of Mormon is the right way to interpret it. Not at all. All I want to do is to demonstrate the profoundness of those passages so that you'll be invited into a deeper study of them yourself, and the Holy Ghost will be able to teach you what you need from them. So let me tell you a little bit about my background in coming to the topic today. First of all, I'm connected today to a group of people that very few people have the privilege of associating with. So the pictures in front of you now are about 200 students of a place called the Other Side Academy. When most of us used to think about addiction 30, 40 years ago, this was the population we thought of. So the average person in these pictures was arrested 25 times before the pictures were taken. All have been hardcore addicts to meth, to cocaine, to crack, to heroin, you name it. Most have been uh, addicts for decades. Most came from deeply broken backgrounds as well. And that's what we used to think of as an addict. We used to think of somebody like Dave, also somebody that I know from the Other Side Academy. When I went to jail the first time where I was fighting a case that I, when I was looking at going to prison, it was for a large amount of methamphetamine and firearms, and the end result was two years. I got out for 60 days after that term, got in trouble again for the same exact thing, and went back to prison for five more years. Got out another two months, went back to prison for six years, 
got out after that term and went back to prison for 10 years. And soon after that term, I had gotten in trouble again, only this time I was looking at 29 years, which in essence would have been the rest of my life. So that's the criminal addict, right? When when I was growing up, you'd think of it as that hobo that was jumping trains or somebody that you would see occasionally in a tough part of town. And, uh, you know, we, we think of people like Tiffany here. We think of people like Sean and Greg and Diego and Tori. So all of these are folks, you know, one was raised under a bridge from about age 11 on. Another was raised in a violent family environment and then committed violent crimes across the United States before landing in a jail in Utah. Another was part of a gang life and stabbed a homeless person, was arrested for this as a way of trying to impress his gang and get status with them. Another lived as a sex worker on the streets of Salt Lake City for about 10 years, just trying to stay high by by using their body almost like an ATM. So these are the stories that we usually would think of in the past, but this is the addicts today. This is the province that Satan tries to attack to try to bring that same affliction, that same kind of addiction to the entire rest of the world. And he's serving it up in incredibly clever ways, ways that are so enticing, so attractive that all of us are subject to them. Now, just so that we can get in the proper mindset as we think about addiction, let's think about its consequences, irrespective of whether it comes from a needle or a bottle, a magazine or online. Honestly, I was prepared to lie until I was dead. If there was a, a sexual thing that you could pay for, I bought it. Normal people don't get triggered to do immoral things 20 different times on a five-mile trip to work. That's not normal, but that's my life. The one thing from the age of six that I swore I was never going to do was ruin my marriage. And yet here I was doing it, and I knew that uh, if, I, if I told the truth, that I would lose my marriage because there, the truth was going to wreck my marriage. It was going to hurt my children in ways that I would never be able to make restitution for. I was unfaithful to my wife and to my church and to my children. So that's the pathos, that's the pain. And probably all of us that are participating in this conversation right now have experienced this either firsthand or secondhand. It's important when trying to approach a problem to define it properly. Einstein once said if he had an hour to solve a problem, he'd spend 55 minutes defining it and five minutes solving it. So let's talk about our definition of addiction. I'd like to define it for our purposes today in spiritual terms. Addiction is a habit that reduces agency. That's it. That's what it does. That's what Satan's goal is with addiction. It's to try to reduce our capacity to respond to the spirit and make righteous choices. How does it do that? By trading short-term pleasure or relief and producing substantial long-term pain or costs. As you think about that as a definition of addiction, I hope it brings all of us into the conversation. What are some modern day addictions? What habits do you and I have that inhibit our constant intimacy with the spirit? Literally, this opens the, the platform up so that we can refer to any kind of behavior that interrupts our capacity to concentrate, to feel the spirit, to choose higher and better goals and activities in our lives as addiction, because that's the way I believe Satan sees it as well. Now, this was foreseen. I think it was pre prefigured in the Word of Wisdom, where we see words that I, that I think suggest 
that the word of wisdom wasn't about what we often think it was about. We think it's about substances, but literally it wasn't for about 20 verses that any reference to substances was made in the, in the word of wisdom. Remember the preamble to it as it begins, it leads in with the words, behold, verily, thus saith the Lord unto you in consequence of, you remember the words? Go ahead and finish the, the verse. In consequence of the evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days. It isn't in consequence of substances of alcohol or drugs or pornography. That's not what it's referring to. It's in consequence of evils and designs of conspiring people in the last days. In essence, what we're told is that this warning and forewarning that's being given to us in our word of wisdom is against conspiring and evil people who will manipulate us into surrendering our agency. Now, later on, the word of wisdom will refer to a couple of specific substances that can have that character. But the introduction, the preface to this is suggesting this is about conspiring and evil. And this is about ways of invading our agency. Now, let me tell you about my story. So this is five of our six children at a younger stage of life. So Seth there in the upper left and Kara in the middle on the top and then Samuel and Aislinn and Hiram on the bottom. Obviously, all of our kids are much older today, but I'll focus a lot on Seth's story for our discussion today. Seth was a precocious kid. He talked at about age 18 months. I remember him talking to a guy who was repairing our dishwasher and saying, thank you so much for taking your time to repair our dishwasher. 18 months old. Here he is. You'll watch him from stage right trying to interrupt an early music video that my daughters were trying to make with two neighbor kids. There he is in the red and white striped shirt with his co-conspirator. So Seth was active, engaged, interested, fun, again, incredibly precocious, and, uh, and from an early age, quite verbal in a lot of ways. You'll see him here in a high-stakes negotiation with one of the neighbor kids, Annie. <laughs> Would you give me all of this for those? Uh -huh. So Annie, you know, would you give me all of this for those? What? Would you give me all of this for those? For these? No, for these. No, I just want, uh, Annie, these are all I just want. Uh, no, Annie. Annie, would you take this and let me have all of those? All of everything in here and that? Like a dog with a bone. <laughs> so that was Seth. He was intense. He was bright, but he had a sweet and tender heart, was generous, sympathetic with those who were suffering. Just a wonderful little boy. He also had the misfortune, at least in his mind, of growing up with red hair and skinny. For some reason, that wasn't the, the greatest social status getter for him in his early up, uh, upgrowing. He wanted to be big and tough. I remember watching him in incredible agony as he tried to be a wrestler. And his singlet would hang off of his body. He'd go out there, get pinned in nothing flat, come back in tears, and then go back again the next week. It was just awful, terrible for him. Really difficult because he wasn't the guy he wanted to be. He didn't want to be smart. He didn't want to be good. He wanted to be tough and he wanted to be big and he never was. Well, 
he grew up, you know, kind of normal, like most kids that struggled with those things. Here he is playing cards in the right on the back there at a little bit older age. And, and it was as he got a little bit older that some troubling things started to happen. He started complaining of headaches. He would sleep a lot. He would ask to be able to go to a doctor. He said he had migraines and, and all sorts of other afflictions began. And, and in particular, this long sleeping stuff would happen. We didn't know what was going on. We didn't understand the early warning signs, what was occurring. But it all came to a head one crisp spring evening when we were watching a soccer match with one of our younger boys. I got a call on a cell phone from my daughter. She was whispering and she sounded panicked and horrified. She said, I just walked into Seth's room and he's using heroin. As a parent, it came completely out of the blue. I had no idea how to even process the words. She said, he begged me not to tell you. I told him that I wouldn't, but please, dad, come home as fast as you can. You've got to deal with this. As I drove home, I felt like there was a bowling ball in my chest. I was horrified. I played out these scenarios just in the few minute drive home of, of decades of addiction and a son that might die on the streets and overdose heroin. That was a word that wasn't supposed to happen, not only just in our family, but even in our neighborhood. We we're in this nice middle-class neighborhood in, in Provo, Utah, expected to raise our kids to go on missions and attend BYU or some other university and uh, marry in the temple. And here it was heroin in our home. We were absolutely thunderstruck. Well, this began a decade-long torment with this son. This is him during one of his positive periods when he was out of a rehab and doing a little bit better in his life. This is where I found him just a couple of months later, living in a trap house on a urine-soaked mattress. The windows were busted out. It was wintertime. It was 27 degrees outside. And, and here I was rescuing my son out of this horrifying environment. This is him after I brought him home emaciated, probably having lost 40 pounds from where he'd been just previously as he was living this life of addiction. Here again is where I rescued him just a few months after that. It was rehab after rehab. It was hope after hope. It was dashed hopes after dashed hopes. At one point, at one particularly low point, I got a call after not having seen him for a number of months. He'd been incarcerated and then released and and then I heard that he had been taken to the hospital and was in the ICU, and they weren't sure whether he was going to survive. Here he is uh, hooked up to tubes. I stood next to him holding his hand as he was literally in and out of consciousness, his kidneys and other organs shutting down as he'd been lying still for about nine hours, and uh, parts of his body had started to break down. He became permanently handicapped after this awful event. So that was a decade with Seth. And through all of this, I entered it smugly to begin with, because as I shared when we started, my background was social science. I study why people do, do what they do and how to help them change. And as part of my research, I had met some of the foremost scholars and practitioners in addiction recovery in the entire world. And so I thought to myself, when heroin first entered our home, it doesn't stand a chance because I'm that smart, because I've got access to some of these experts and we're going to whip this sucker in no time at all until we didn't, until relapse after relapse and lies and crimes and in and out of jail and in and out of prison. And then a peer group that he began to associate with that absolutely horrified us. So in addition to the secular studies that I did to try to see what we could do to help him to overcome his addiction, I also turned to the scriptures and I 
had this remarkable experience at one point as I had read through the Doctrine and Covenants in the Old Testament, the New Testament, looking for anything I could that would teach me what I needed to know. I went to the temple as often as I possibly could and tried to seek revelation. And at one point, I'm reading the Book of Mormon and a remarkable thing happened. Now, if you think about it, the Book of Mormon, depending on the version that you read, is 531 pages, covers a thousand years history. And yet Mormon chooses to spend 30% of that literary real estate on a 39-year period. I don't think he does this just by accident or casually. I think Mormon is making very deliberate choices about this 39-year period. So Alma, for example, this book covers 91 to 52 BC, 160 out of those 531 pages. Now, the, the literary choice makes a lot of sense when you look at some of the major topics, Antichrist, perfecting the saints, missionary journey, journeys, extended counseling of errant children. So those kind of make sense. They're sort of evergreen topics. But then all of a sudden, there's Alma 46 to 62. It covers 19 battles, 17 chapters, 45 pages. It's a tithe of the Book of Mormon. And why? I've heard many people speculate, speculate about this over the years, and it wasn't until I was desperate till I was searching the scriptures and trying to find any counsel or wisdom that I could, that I started paying attention to this 12-year little sliver of time out of the thousand-year panorama that Mormon was trying to survey. And at one point, I think growing up, I, I kind of glibly suspected that this was a marketing ploy, right? This is a way of getting 12-year-old boys who aren't big book readers to read the Book of Mormon, put a little violence in, right? But as I was more sober now and desperate, I started to understand something a little bit different. I started more deeply asking this question, what is the spiritual significance that justifies this amount of sacred scripture that would cause Mormon to offer it to us? As I read through the Book of Mormon in absolute desperation, I got to Alma chapter 46 again, probably for the 50th time. And as I encountered the first character that we meet, Amalekiah, the words burned in my mind. They, they beckoned me. They summoned me for some reason. They spoke to me in a way they never had. For example, when he's described as a large and a strong man, all of a sudden it resonated with me that what I was facing was large and strong. And then I read that it described him as wanting only one thing. He wants absolute power to subject everybody to himself. That's Amalekiah's goal. Now, it's obvious that the symbol that's being introduced here is Satan. And Amalekiah represents Satan, but he began to represent a more specific form of that to me because I, I read in the deal that he offered the Nephites something that told me that the subsequent chapters were going to speak very directly and very specific to me, specifically to me, if I paid attention. Amalekiah's offer to people was essentially this. Listen to it and think if this doesn't connect with every concern for bondage and addiction that you and I encounter. And Amalekiah, it says, was desirous to be a king. And they had been led by the flatteries of Amalekiah that if they would support him and establish him to be their king, and this is really interesting language, that he would make them rulers over the people. Listen to the deception. Listen to the manipulation. It's embedded in every addiction offer known to man. What Amalekiah is basically offering is pleasure for bondage. What he's saying is, if you support me as being dominant over you, if you subject yourself to me, I'll give you power under me, an ironic phrase. 
So here's this horrific human being that is saying, in essence, that all you've got to be is my slaves and I'll let you have all the fun you want. So again, let's define addiction as bondage. It's a habit that reduces agency by trading short-term pleasure or relief while producing substantial long-term pain or costs. So that's the setup to these war chapters. And then we get a second chapter that, or a second character that's introduced to us, Captain Moroni. Now, I had not properly understood who Captain Moroni represented in the past, but now I did because I needed to understand. Remember the passage, it says, and if all men were like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Now, I read that over and over in the past, and I assumed that the meaning of that was, if we would be more like Moroni, the devil would leave us alone. That we needed to be just like Mormon, who admired Captain Moroni so much that he named his own son after him. That if we would become more like this person, then the devil would not have power. But that's not what this is offering. It's offering a deeper, more important, more urgent meaning to you and me. It's if you and I become more like Moroni, the devil will have no power over the hearts of those we love, the children of men. It wasn't Moroni that was in bondage. Captain Moroni had no temptation whatsoever. He wasn't subjecting himself to the Lamanites. It was the people he loved who were doing this. These war chapters are stories of deliverance, but also of delivering. So we may learn some things from Moroni about being strong and righteous, but we learn even more important things about Moroni or from Moroni. We learn things that are even more specifically customized to our day about how to help others get out of bondage. This is a handbook for saviors, not for the saved. This is a handbook for the Captain Moroni character who's symbolically Christ, not the person that's in bondage. Now, as you read through these chapters, of course, there are many symbols that have obvious significance to us. There's a Malachi, a Moroni. There are the Nephites, the king men and the free men. There's stripling warriors, bondage, prisoners of wars, all these different kinds of symbols that I know that the spirit can teach you profound truths to. And all I want to do in our limited time today is just illustrate the depth of what's available by sharing a handful of the things the spirit taught me. Again, I'm referring in this to the book that's available on Amazon. All the proceeds for this go to the Other Side Academy called Moroni's War on Addiction. It's available in Kindle as well as in print. Here are some of the saving principles that I learned. Number one, Satan wins when you hide the problem. So rally your troops. This is so counter to our church culture, but it's precisely what Moroni would have us do. Satan has one kind of problem-solving advice to any of us that are experiencing challenges in our families and in our lives. Our son or our daughter becomes an addict. Our our husband, our spouse is is addicted to pornography. Or there's some other crisis where we're struggling in our marriage and what have you. The problem-solving advice that Satan first offers all of us is this. It's hide. From the Garden of Eden down, as soon as you're feeling a bit naked, what he tells us to do is cover ourselves up. Quick, hide. Heavenly Father will see that you're naked and you'll be so ashamed. That's the advice that he offers. And we follow it assiduously. That's what you and I do. In fact, one of the most tragic illustrations of this I encountered in a ward many years ago. I'd heard that one of the men in the ward, his wife, had attempted suicide the week before. I wasn't particularly uh, close to him, didn't know the family circumstances much, but it just sort of ached at my heart that this had happened. 
And I began asking around. I wasn't the high priest group leader, elders quorum president or anything like that. And But I asked around to say, who are the home teachers? Who are the ministers? Are they talking to him? Is he getting help? Because I worried about how we respond to these things in the church. Finally, I tracked down the home teachers and I said, have you talked to him? Let me, let me call him Bob. Have you talked to Bob about what's going on? They said, oh, no, we wouldn't want to intrude on their privacy. We want to respect their ability to go through this on their own for crying out loud, for crying out loud. And I went along with this for weeks until finally the spirit shamed me into making a phone call to a guy I didn't even know that well. He was a professor at BYU. And I called him up and I said, Bob, I didn't have any better words. This wasn't a particularly elegant way of opening it up. I said, Bob, I heard your wife attempted suicide. I can't imagine how that must feel. Do you want to talk? There was a long silence on the other end of the line. And finally, I heard sniffles. And then finally, I heard, I would love that. We got together the next day and had a deep and intimate conversation about what he was going through. Satan's advice is the opposite. It's to hide. Moroni, on the other other hand, has the opposite advice. It says that when he saw that his people were selling themselves into bondage, look what he does. It says it came to pass that he rent his coat. He took a piece thereof and wrote upon it. He's making this big public display. He's posting on Facebook basically here. It says he fastens on his head plate and his breastplate and his shields and girds on his armor about his loins. And he bows himself to the earth and he prays mightily. And then it says he went forth among the people, waving the rent part of his garment in the air that all might see. Now, brothers and sisters, what I'm not suggesting is exhibitionism. I'm not suggesting that we stand out of fa- up at fast and testimony meeting and confess all the problems in our marriage. That's not what I'm saying. But there are appropriate people for us to talk with. That's why I believe that President Nelson has tried to scrap this whole old idea and culture around visiting and home teaching and said, call it ministry and make it about relationships. Don't bring in a prepared lesson and hide behind it. Get into people's homes. Get into their business. Make it dirty and messy. Start understanding each other's problems. That's what he's asking us to do, to wave the rent part of our garments, this damaged part of our lives that all might see who need to see, who need to be involved. And when you see others waving theirs as well, you rush to have that conversation, as awkward and uncomfortable as it might be. The bad guys are terrific at rallying together. The good guys, not so much. And we in our church culture need to change this. We sit next to each other in agony so often. I look at this picture and I think, how many are struggling in their marriage? How many are dealing with addiction? How many are unemployed? How many are scared about some problem that they don't know how to deal with? How many just had a huge setback in life? And yet we face forward side by side and say nothing to the people seated adjacent to us. When we read in the scriptures and they did meet together oft, and did talk one with another concerning the welfare of their souls. I think they used to know how to do this, and we've forgotten, but we need to relearn it. And we will not be able to help save those who struggle with addiction until we open up. These LDS 12-step groups are the best example of that you can have. People that are candid and open and blunt and putting it out there, and that's why the Spirit is there in such abundance. Knock off the hiding. Second, it's okay to make mistakes. You are a small S savior, not the capital S savior. This is such an important thing that I needed. 
as my son was going through the worst of his addiction, there were so many moments when I handled myself miserably. I think of one that he had stolen our checkbooks, forged checks, and, uh, and among other things that he'd stolen from us. And when I discovered it, I went in and confronted him and I raised my voice and he raised his voice. And then I raised my voice even louder. And then he yelled back and started using swear words that I can't even give you the abbreviations of. And he did that because he knew it would poke at me. And then I told him, don't you dare talk in our house like that and you get out of my house. And it was the wrong thing to say. There are times to ask people to leave, but not in the way that I did that. He slammed the door and I sat down in the office and at first I justified myself and then I broke down and cried. And I worried that I'd burned a bridge that could never be rebuilt, that my son was gone and perhaps gone forever. And it was all my fault. And then I read Captain Moroni. I read chapters 46 to 62. And I begin to understand that Mormon, the editor of the Book of Mormon, made conscious choices to reveal Captain Moroni, this, this hero of his, to reveal his weaknesses and mistakes. You know, one of them, the prominent one, he writes this letter to Pahora and totally misjudges, doesn't just misjudge, but threatens him, says, I'm going to come and murder you. He's absolutely certain that Pahoran is corrupt as anyone else and calls him an idiot. And literally, these kinds of mistakes, there are two or three major ones that Moroni makes. Negotiating in bad faith and changing in a dishonest way in his negotiation with Amalekiah or Amaron. And time and again, Moroni puts that in just to say that Moroni made mistakes, but he was wonderful. What qualified him to preside over the salvation of the Nephites? Number one, he was unconditionally committed to fighting for his loved ones. That's all Heavenly Father asks of you, that you're not going to give up. Second, we're told he had a perfect understanding of gospel principles. Now, that doesn't mean he was perfect. It just means that he put the gospel first as he decided how to approach problems in his life. So can we. Moroni led a 12-year effort to deliver people who didn't even want to be delivered frequently from bondage. The bondage they created. And the message is, we can be patient too. I qualify to be a Moroni for my son because I'm unconditionally committed, because I will put gospel principles ahead in my decision making, and because I will be patient. It's okay to make mistakes. We are not the Savior. We're just a Savior in His employ. Third, and this one I want you to start paying specific attention to. The next two principles are sobering and challenging. And they confront us and our natural tendencies in how we tend to deal with those who are struggling with addiction. The first, you may be weak and outnumbered, but brothers and sisters, victory is not predicted by how strong the addiction is, by how strong pornography is. I was traveling at one point when Seth was uh, out of control. I remember getting to Newark, New Jersey, getting to my hotel, unpacking my bag, turning on the TV as I usually did, trying to find CNN. But for whatever reason on CNN that day was this show called Intervention. Some of you may have heard of it. It's this classic idea of getting a family to surround people, confront them, let them know they're not going to enable them anymore and tell them their only option is to go to a rehab. There's a van waiting in the parking lot. That's the basic drama. As I watched this show unfold, it was about a 13-year-old girl who was hooked on heroin. She was in some hovel trap house that was about a half a mile from her family's beautiful, comfortable, warm home hole. She was living in squalor. They actually showed her going out and hooking up, selling her body, a 13-year-old, 
to some greasy person for $20, enough to get her a, a, a load of heroin to get high again. They show the entire transaction. She goes back and eventually they show the family luring her back to the house and all of them there combined confronting her together. When I saw this happen, I began to pay attention. I sat down, stopped unpacking my bag. They all said, we're not having it anymore. Your only option is to get in the van. She looked from one to another, absolutely flabbergasted. She'd never seen this kind of unity before. Finally, she surrenders. She gets in the van and she's driven to New Mexico somewhere. At this point, I began to pray because this wasn't just her story anymore. This was my story. I'd had so many nightmares where I'd seen my son as a 55-year-old man with no teeth living on the streets, or worse, introducing me to my grandchild that he'd fathered in some sort of a drug binge somewhere. Or even worse than that, that dreaded phone call coming in the night saying they'd found him dead. As she was driven to New Mexico, I needed her to succeed. She checks in, she has a good first day, and then she splits the second day. I turned the television off and I sat there and wept and wept and wept. Brothers and sisters, to those who might feel discouraged and hopeless, Moroni has a promise. We like to refer to Moroni chapter 10 verses 3 to 5, 3 to 5 as the Moroni promise. There's another one. There's a Captain Moroni promise. And that promise from chapters 46 to 62 in the Book of Mormon is this, that you might think you've got a powerful enemy. You might think you're up against something that, that is far stronger than the person that you love or care about, meth or heroin or pornography or alcohol or you name it. If that's your fear, listen to Moroni. Chapters 46 to 62 give a deliberate treatise on hope. Eight different times we're told that battles were conducted in which the Lamanites far outnumbered and far outgunned the Nephites and yet not one soul was lost. It's a repeated, it's a recurring theme, and it's inescapable. You see the phrase intentionally built in time and time again, the first Nephite invasion, the Battle of Gid, the first Battle of Antipara, the second Battle of Antipara. In the Siege of Cumani, we're told, they yielded up the city, the Lamanites did, unto our hands, and thus we had accomplished our designs in obtaining the city of Cumani without loss of life. The Battle of Cumani, the battle of Manti, and thus it came to pass that by this stratagem, we did take possession of the city of Manti without the shedding of blood. The battle of Nephi, thus had Moroni and Pahoran obtained the possession of the city of Nephi without the loss of one soul. Why? Why is Mormon building this in? Because this is a story not just of deliverance, but of delivering. Eight times, Moroni shows us that when we fight the right way, we win. Brothers and sisters, listen to the phrase. When we fight according to correct gospel principles, we win. Not just any time, but when we do it God's way. Victory literally has nothing to do with how strong the addiction is. It has everything to do with the condition of the Nephites. And that's what the next principle will tee up. Most of what you and I do wrong when trying to help deliver people from addiction interferes with the condition of the Nephites, with the very people we are trying to save. It is the condition of the Nephites, not the strength of the Lamanites, that predicts the outcome. There is every reason for hope, but we have to do it God's ways. So, fourth principle, and this one gets tough. Now, please know as I share this, that I am not attempting to prescribe how you handle a specific situation, but I am unapologetic about the principle. 
please listen to the principle and then prayerfully ask yourself, what are the implications for you in the efforts that you have underway? The principle is the best way to motivate the rebellious is to get out of God's way. Moroni, if you'll remember, faces ambivalent Nephites, people that didn't even want to get out of bondage, just like most addicts in their current addiction. Throughout this 12-year campaign, that was his struggle. He would get them a little free, they'd make a little progress, and then they'd sell out again. Some faction would go cut a deal with the Lamanites. After covenanting time and again to defend their freedom, they backslide. This is when you start to gain a witness that these chapters are for us. This is the handbook for helping people overcome addiction. What does Moroni do? Please remember this. And you know the answer. I'm going to give you my version of it, but you already know the answer. What does Moroni do when his own people make self-destructive choices? My wife and I faced this many, many times. At one point, Seth had been on a an awful binge for a significant period of time, finally called discourage as often happened over these many years and said, dad, I want out of it. I want out of it. He came to our house and we talked to him and we told him as we always did, Seth, we will do anything to help you if we believe it will actually help. And you first, when you're willing to put everything into it, we're willing to get behind you. Are you willing? Absolutely, dad. Absolutely. I am. Well, we said, If we take you back into our home, which is what he was asking for temporarily as he got on his feet, what are you willing to commit to? He committed to going to a 12-step meeting, meeting with his bishop, which he said was important to him. His spirituality suddenly was of ultimate importance to him. Reading the scriptures, getting a job, cutting off contact with friends, and on and on and on. Made a series of commitments, totally, totally willingly. And he kept them absolutely faithfully for 24 hours. Then he started griping and complaining and moaning and Then he started picking fights with us, and then he arranged for drugs to be dropped off. When we found out, when we caught him, the deal had been crystal clear. You violate any of these agreements, you leave immediately. Addicts need it that clear. If there aren't clear and immediate consequences, that's an invitation to manipulation for the addict every single time. The problem with addiction isn't that it afflicts you, it's who it makes you become. You become a liar and a thief and a manipulator and a narcissist. And that's how you need to think about the individual that you love and you're trying to help. They aren't that little boy that they were when they were five years old. They're a liar, a thief, a manipulator, and a narcissist. And that's who he was in that moment. And the only way to help people that are all about immediate gratification is with immediate consequences. So we had the conversation. Seth, did you violate the agreement? Yes, I did. What's our agreement? I have to leave. It was snowing outside. It was 23 degrees. And I couldn't imagine putting him on the street in those conditions. My wife and I went upstairs and agonized and prayed and talked. Brothers and sisters, you and I ask the wrong question at times like this. We ask ourselves, what can we do to get somebody to change? And that's not the righteous question. That's not the appropriate question. The correct question is, what are you doing that's keeping them from changing? There's nothing you can do to accelerate change. Brothers and sisters, there is not. You can't speed up somebody's motivation to try to get clean in their lives. You can't. Nothing. All you can do is slow it down. And most of what we do does that, has that effect. We slow people down. We get in the way of their motivation to change. And that's your leverage. That's what Moroni, Captain Moroni, understood profoundly. He considered sacrosanct this principle of motivation, that when you stand between your loved one and justice, you stand between your loved one and God. 
God set up a learning system on this planet that we would learn from our own experience. Listen to it. That we would learn from our own experience, not from the well-intended family members, not from somebody mortgaging the house to try to pay for another rehab, not from any of that. That we would learn from our own experience to distinguish good from evil. He set up the system. God is really, really reluctant to intervene and mess with the physics of life to try to protect people from the consequences they seem determined to choose. He doesn't do it. You and I tend to think, well, because he's not, that means we're supposed to. No, he's showing us what a father looks like, what a loving parent looks like, because consequences teach, they're educative. And so we have this situation where Captain Moroni, time and again, would have to decide how to deal with Nephites who were breaking the law. They were committing treason. They were cutting deals with the enemy. They were aiding a bet and abetting the downfall of their entire civilization. What's that called in legal jurisprudence? It's called treason. And at a time of war in many societies, the consequence for treason is the death penalty. Now, I believe that Mormon put this in there, edited this thousand year history, chose these 12 years and put these examples in so that you and I would get the lesson full force. Moroni commanded his army should go against the king men. He went to war against his own people repeatedly. He gave up the war against the Lamanites, the heroin, the alcohol, all of those other things. Brothers and sisters, you and I think it's our job to keep the drug dealers away from our kids, to go hunt them down, to threaten them, to bring them to justice. Now that needs to happen, but that's not your number one job. That won't fix your kids. If they're hanging out with people that you don't like, the problem is not the people you don't like, it's your kid. It's the one who's committing the problem. And Moroni went to war against his own people. And it came to pass that there were 4,000 of those dissenters who were hewn down by the sword. And those who were not slain in battle were taken and cast into prison. Now, brothers and sisters, there's a sobering message in this too. Some of those people died in bondage. And that will happen in the war that you and I are engaged in as well. But we also believe in a gospel that saves people on both sides of the veil. We believe in it firmly. We know it to be true that the saving power of the atonement of Jesus Christ is not limited to this side of the grave. There are times when it's essential for you to allow natural consequences to take their course because it's the only possible path to speed people towards making a decision to try to get to a better place in their life. My wife and I sat up in our room in agony. It's 23 degrees outside. But the Spirit told us that we needed to trust not our own wisdom and the arm of flesh, but trust God. And we did. I went downstairs and I told Seth, where do you want me to take you? He was nervous about me taking him back to the trap house he used to live in because he thought I'd probably turn in most of his his cohort there. And he was right. I probably would have. So he loaded everything he had into two big, giant black trash bags, stuck them in the back of my car and asked me to drop him off at Walmart. Brothers and sisters, as he got out of the car and had no interest in conversation with his father, and he set his trash bags on the ground, and I pulled away slowly and looked in the rearview mirror and saw the receding image of my son with two big black trash bags in front of a Walmart. I could hardly drive a mile before I had to pull aside to the side of the road and cry and then pray. I prayed and said, dear God, dear Father in heaven, please And then I realized the irreverence of that prayer, that it was my job to motivate Heavenly Father to care more about my son than he already did. I realized that I was talking to somebody who cared about him far more and far more wisely than I ever could or would. 
Brothers and sisters, when we remove natural consequences from those we love, we interfere with God's ordained process. The best way to motivate is to stop trying to motivate. Just get out of God's way. Finally, brothers and sisters, this last is a commandment. I noticed that my marriage was suffering as we went through these years, not just with one son, but with two, in and out of jail and on drugs constantly. And as, as we obsessed over, as we built our lives around the weakness and the misery of our boys, our lives became miserable as well. And then Captain Moroni taught me that you are supposed to feel joy even while the war is raging. And the only way you can do that is by surrendering to God and practicing gratitude. There was a moment at which Seth was doing pretty well. We got together. I had a custom of taking each of my kids on a special trip every year. And this was the first special trip I'd have with him in many years. I wrote in my journal on January 28th, 2009, that it was a cherished day. I wrote last night, Seth and I went on our first special trip in three years. We drove to downtown Salt Lake City, stayed at the Hilton, ate at a steakhouse, got a really expensive steak. After dinner, we went to the gym and then settled down and watched a movie together, cuddled together. And then we went to Snowbird the next day. It was one of the best ski days ever. Nine inches of powder, 40 inches of base from the previous week, 34 degrees. It was glorious. But it wasn't wonderful because of the snow. And it wasn't wonderful because of the steak. It was wonderful because I was with this son that I thought I had lost. So that was January 28, 2009. Watch the date. Literally two weeks later, February 14th, we asked Seth to leave our home last night after he stole money and used Time and time and time again, our hopes were dashed and crushed. And then I began to read these bizarre passages in these Captain Moroni chapters that literally instructed us about feeling joy even while carnage is mounting around us. The reason you and I struggle to feel joy while we're involved in this protracted war is that we start to believe it's our job to be the savior. It's our job to save the child. It's when we get this messed up, inverted, that we feel the most miserable. And so you read these passages, passages in chapters 46 to 62, like the passages about the stripling warriors. And we miss some of the most important messages. We like the headline of it, which is none of the stripling warriors were lost. Well, brothers and sisters, the story goes a lot deeper than that. Think about the armies of Antipas, not the armies of Helaman. We don't sing primary songs about that because I think it would make the kids cry. It says the armies of Antipas had overtaken them and a terrible battle had commenced. This is where none of the stripling warriors were lost. The army of Antipas was weary and Antipas was, had fallen by the sword. He was murdered. And many of his leaders, there were a thousand of our brethren who were slain. And that's the backdrop. A thousand dead leaders, a decapitation of the army. And what they've got left is a bunch of boys, very faithful boys. And it's a wonderful story. And amidst all of this, Helaman asks, Excuse me. Amongst all this, Helaman asks to have a census. He wants to know the total report from the battle. And they tell him a thousand have died. And then he says, and what about the boys? And they come back and they say, not one was lost. And what we're told in that moment, and now it came to pass that when Moroni had received this epistle, his heart was filled with exceeding great joy. And Helaman was filled with exceeding great joy. It's smell and carnage and horror on the battlefield. How do you feel joy in that context? The way you feel joy is by watching for tender mercies because the war isn't over. There are just tender mercies in the midst of the battle. And brothers and sisters, it's our job to do that. 
I sat once in it one day in my office, and I don't know where I got this awful false doctrine. You may have heard it too, but somewhere growing up, somewhere along the way, I heard somebody that seemed like a general authority say that no good parent is ever happier than their least happy child. Think about that phrase for a moment. No good parent is ever happier than their least happy child. And I wore it like a badge of honor, my grief and my misery, because I was devoted to saving this son. And I sat in my office one day after Seth had overdosed, was in the hospital and looked like he might not survive. And I started to get angry and bitter. And I thought to myself, no parent is ever happier than their least happy child. And then I started realizing the awful implications of that. Heavenly Father, if that's true, must be the most miserable being in the entire universe. Because at any point in time, out of the 8 billion children on earth, there's about 7.99 billion that are not doing well at all. And so if he's never happier than the least happy child, he must be in grief constantly. What a miserable life. And as I let that soak in, I thought to myself, why would I worship a being that's that miserable? And I let myself own that for a moment. And then what started to settle in was the truth that banished those horrible false doctrines. The truth is that I worship the happiest being in the universe. And in spite of the fact that 7.99 billion of his children at any point in time are making really bad choices, he's gloriously happy. And I want a life like his. How do you do that? You do that by watching for the tender mercies. And they happen all the time. When Seth was in the hospital after his overdose, I went to visit him one day. And he was in agony because... Well, after weeks in the hospital, he'd had a catheter. They were trying to remove it. They were trying, hoping to get his organs moving again. And I don't know if any of you have experienced being catheterized before, but after weeks and weeks and weeks of it, it was swollen and raw and painful. And they'd pull this out and he would try to go one day and see if he could go to the bathroom and his bladder would fill and then they'd have to put it back in again. And he would cry and he would complain because not only was it painful as you would expect it was, but he was a heroin addict. And so no amount of medication they were giving him was relieving him of any of his suffering. And he would plead for more and more and more of the drugs that they could offer, but none of it was ever going to satisfy him. Well, after four attempts in and out and in and out and in and out, he was terrified that they were going to try again. At the end of this visit, he said, please, dad, is there anything that you can do? Anything you can do? He was just desperate. And in my mind, honestly, I thought, well, maybe if you weren't a drug addict, you know, those are the kind of vengeful and, and judgmental, condescending thoughts that happen sometimes. I repented and, and calmed myself and, and looked at him and said, Seth, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's tough. And I love you and turned to walk away. And as I left, the spirit came down on me in absolute clarity. I turned back around and had this conversation with him. I said, Seth, do you believe in God? He looked at me and his eyes opened a little wide. I had his full attention. He said, yes, I do. I said, Seth, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And then he started to sober. His ears or his eyes welled up a little bit and he said, yes, I do. I said, Seth, do you believe that Jesus Christ and his priesthood power can relieve you of the suffering that you're experiencing right now? And in great hope, he said, I do, dad, I do. I said, Seth, I promise you in the name of Jesus Christ that if you will be prayerful tonight and ask for his help, I will ask the rest of the family to pray with us. And tomorrow I will come and will give you a blessing. And I know that Heavenly Father can and will bless you. He offered no response. His face looked hopeful, but fearful. And I left. That night, our entire family unified in prayer. So did Seth. 
The next day I came and I gave him that blessing. Now, it doesn't sound like the most spiritual text to ever get, but the next day I got one from him at three o'clock in the afternoon that said, Dad, I peed. And I was filled with tremendous joy. My son relapsed a week and a half later and went back to the same lifestyle. And yet that moment gave me hope and let me know that Heavenly Father was with us, loved us, cared about us, and that the long-term prospects were positive. You and I need the most motivation to stay engaged at the times that we have the least hope. And gratitude is the best way of inoculating ourselves against despair and hopelessness, and also the impatience that often possesses us. The only way to maintain gratitude is to watch for those tender mercies, because the war doesn't look good. The battle might be just fine in some narrow aspects. 1,500 stripling warriors are completely safe, even though a 1,000 of Antipas's army have been killed. So brothers and sisters, there is tremendous depth, tremendous wisdom in these chapters. I've shared with you just a small sampling of them today. Satan wins when you hide. Don't hide. Rally the troops. Get the saints, the priesthood holders, the family, all who should be involved to the table. It's okay to make mistakes. You're not the savior. You're just a savior. Victory has nothing to do with the strength of the enemy. The best way to motivate is to get out of God's way. Stop interrupting natural consequences. And you are commanded to feel joy while the war is raging. The only way you can do that is to surrender the war to God and practice gratitude. Now, there's tremendous depth as well for addicts, for people who themselves have addiction, which really includes all of us. All of us are subject to different addictive habit patterns in our lives. There are principles that you'll read in these war chapters as well about erecting defenses that make sin impossible, working to exhaust temptation, watching carefully for tender mercies, and so on. And those are detailed in Moroni's War on Addiction, the book that I referred to earlier. But I want to share with you my final testimony by giving you a little bit of a sense of how this concludes. For us, it concluded after many, many, many years and tremendous misery. My son finally turned his back on the addiction. He had to have an enormous number of consequences. He became handicapped, as I suggested, was facing an enormous prison sentence and worse and worse and worse. He turned back to the scriptures, began to appreciate some of his spirituality as well. He married. He's given us two grandchildren. Brothers and sisters, this isn't always how the story ends or the timing of how it ends. But I know a couple of things with absolute certainty. I know these because I'm involved in this place called the Other Side Academy. I now have over 200 addicts and criminals in my lives. And I get to watch how God intervenes in their lives. And I know a few things, again, with absolute certainty. As I've watched Tiffany and Diego and Greg and Sean and Tori, and I've watched transformation occur. I've watched Tiffany move from the woman on the left to the one on the right, all under God's tremendous influence. Sean become a man of impeccable integrity. Diego become a leader at the Other Side Academy and, a, and running a multi-million dollar business. Tori, who has become the leader of the women's program at the Other Side Academy. Greg, who helped open a campus at the Other Side Academy in Denver. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are bishops, elders, quorum, Relief society presidents, please learn about the Other Side Academy. So many of you are looking for solutions for help for people that are struggling with long-term change challenges. The Other Side Academy is free. It's two years long. It's free and it's two years long. You're spending sacred church funds often on rehabs that have very little positive track record or producing any kind of change. Check out this option as well. Please consider it. 
My final testimony will sound like the words of Lorenzo Snow, but these are my words as well. You that are mourning about your children straying away, he says unequivocally, will have your sons and daughters. This is just as sure as that the sun rose this morning over yonder mountains, he continues. Therefore, mourn not because all your sons and daughters do not follow in the path that you have marked out to them. Inasmuch as we stand as small s saviors, we will save our posterity. Brothers and sisters, one of the most beautiful passages in these war chapters comes at the end. And Moroni yielded up the command of his armies and he retired to his own house that he might spend the remainder of his days in peace. Brothers and sisters, I know that the Spirit can teach us. The scriptures at their best are a medium for revelation. And there is profound wisdom available in these war chapters. The Spirit can teach us, but it will tax us too. You will be asked to do things that are deeply uncomfortable. When I dropped my son off at Walmart, it broke my heart and it was exactly the right thing to do. If it feels like the right thing to do, it isn't always the right thing to do. Just like Moroni, who I'm sure was agonized when he had to turn his own armies on each other to try to enforce the laws and bring people back to the consequences that they had chosen. But when we do, when we fight the Lord's way, we win. We win. Just as sure as the sun comes up over yonder mountains every single day. And that is my testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Wow. Thank you so much, Joseph. What a remarkable, powerful message and so personal. And my heart was touched so many times just thinking of my little boy who's seven, right? And uh, it's just hard to think that even the social scientist like isn't safe from this path, you know, but but Jesus was there all along the way. So it's such a powerful story. Oh, Thank man. you so much for being raw and real. And and I'm so happy to hear that Seth is doing well and, and what blessing he's brought in your life in so many ways. Is there, I'm just curious with his story, like, was there anything, anything about the last relapse or was there a moment where it sort of shifted like, okay, he figured it out. Like he's over, over the hill with this. What comes to mind? Well, I'll respond to that the, the way I do to myself. That's the kind of question we ask when we're trying to learn to better control the process. Mm. <laughs> we want to know the key, the trick, you know, what's the right kind of rock bottom for anybody. And, you know, having been with over a thousand people at the Other Side Academy now, there is no absolute rock bottom isn't a location. It's mm. a condition. And you can have 50 rock bottoms before you finally make a decision that you're going to turn face forward. The only thing that you and I can do, and every one of our students at the Other Side Academy, when we've had parents come in that were grieving and anxious and worried and upset about their kids, every one of them will tell you the same thing. Get out of the way of the consequences. Let them go to jail. Let them be homeless. Let them do whatever they need to do, because all you're doing is slowing down the learning process. Every time you weaken that connection between choice and consequence, yeah. there isn't one of our students that would say otherwise. So no, I can't say anything different. I would have thought that almost dying and becoming handicapped would have done it. It didn't. And uh, really, it was an accumulation of 50 rock bottoms and 50 different attempts to try to cut a bargain with addiction. That's what addicts typically do. They want to try to find the easiest way to get forward. And so if you say you'll send them to a 30-day rehab, which frankly almost never works, they'll take the 30-day rehab. If you say it's two years at the Other Side Academy or nothing, then they might think about the Other Side Academy. But if you're offering easy or hard, guess what they're going to pick every single time? Mm, yeah, yeah. And it really is like, it's one of those things, it's that surrender state of mind that as loved ones, you have to be in. But And that even includes like, hey, I don't mind if they go to jail a hundred more times or they, you know, have a, a or they're homeless another 10 times or whatever. But 
you have to even surrender their livelihood, whether that you're going to get that phone call of a tragic overdose and death or not, right? You just have to re- surrender it all. Yeah. If you start taking on the job of saying, I have to make sure they don't die, you will go insane and yeah. you can't succeed. It's a battle yeah. you'll never win. Now, obviously, if you know that they're doing something dangerous, what you do is you call the police or you have them admitted to a psych ward or you do whatever else you need to do. But what you don't do is start obsessing over your responsibility to try to fix problems in their lives. We believe in the afterlife for a reason as well. And I'm not being casual or glib about this. I've buried many friends. I've attended too many funerals. But I also know that if you start living your life in a way that you think it's your job to keep them alive, what you're going to do is make it more likely they'll stay in a destructive pattern and take their life at some point. Yeah. I'm curious, like during this, and how long of time was this? A good decade then? Is that what you said? A good decade? About 12 of years total. Wow. What was like... What did you need as a family, as an individual from your local ward or your bishop? Or, I mean, what would you say is their role when a family in their ward is going through something like this? A transparency, first of all, just knowing that other people knew and that we're comfortable coming and saying, how are you? And giving us a hug if they saw we were having a low week. And just having people that were inside the tent with us at the point that Seth overdosed. One of my dearest friends from our ward called and said, I heard Seth is in the hospital. He said, I'll be right there. He didn't ask for permission. He didn't wait to be told. He showed up and he said, I am yours all night. And that phrase will stay with me until my dying day. That kind of absolute faithfulness and loyalty, even though there was nothing he could do to fix anything, at least I didn't feel alone. And that's why Satan's strategy of getting us to feel ashamed and hiding our problems for each other is so devastating. What what Christ is about is atonement. And that means us connecting with each other, not just with God. Atonement is about the sealing of the entire human family. And these hardships, these difficulties come as a way of encouraging atonement, of getting us to rally together. Look at how Moroni, Captain Moroni, won this campaign. It was by building unity and loyalty. And when all of the Nephites were connected to each other and on board and unflinchingly committed to a common cause, that's when they won in a very short time frame. Yeah. And you talk about this, the importance of just like going to your community with authenticity and being open and not hiding, you know, the struggles in your life. How, like, how do you show up on, on at church on Sunday? Like, how has this experience changed how you show up on Sunday? What does that even look like being more authentic and in your own personal experience? Yeah, you show up real. You aren't wearing your feelings on your sleeve and you're not hiding them, but you're not putting on a fake smile. Don't put on a fake mm-hmm. smile. That wears you down. If you're feeling somber and you're feeling a little sad, Carry that with you to church and go go looking for help and for hope at the sacrament table as well. But I've sat in far too many priesthood meetings where we're talking about abstract concepts when people are dealing with concrete problems in the room. And there's so much life experience and wisdom in that room. That's, again, why this whole Come Follow Me curriculum is there. So we'll stop hiding behind lessons and scriptures and start talking about real issues and concerns, something we still haven't figured out how to do very well in many, many wards. Yeah. Talk to me about this concept as far as rehab, because, you know, from a church leader's standpoint, it's like this individual is having an addiction issue. Let's, let's, you know, rally the troops and fix it, fix them, find the best program, find somebody with unlimited resources that can cover that program and then send them there. Right. And then hope that they say, but the, as you, as you mentioned, the, you know, the success rate of a lot of these rehab resources, one, not just isn't great. And so what do you consider the other side project? Is that a, a rehab program or how would you frame it? How is it different? 
Our assumption at the other side academy is that the addict's problem is not drugs. The problem is life. It's learning to deal with the emotions and stresses and challenges of life on life's terms. And the, the addiction was just a way of escaping that. And so we're not going to talk with you about the physiology of addiction. Most of our students have been to five or 10 other rehabs already. They've been to rehabs in jail or in prison as well and gone through all sorts of different programs. They know about the physiology. They know that heroin's bad for you and they know all of that. So we don't waste their time doing that. What we do is give them a chance for a sustained period of time to learn to live life a different way. They will stay a minimum of two and a half years. Now, brothers and sisters that are listening, if you've got somebody who has had an addiction issue for five to 10 years, their issue is no longer the substance or the material or the behavior. That isn't the problem. The problem is they've learned an approach to life that doesn't work. And why would we ever assume that a 30 or 60 or 90 day program would fix a 10 year long problem? It's an insult to the concept. And so it's not that the Other Side Academy is the end all, but we ought to, as we're making decisions, understand that the size of the solution ought to fit the size of the problem. Most of our students, two thirds of them, choose to stay an extra year, even after they've satisfied their commitment to the courts. And so most of our students are there as an alternative to a prison or jail sentence. But again, even after they've been forgiven of their outstanding time, they will choose to stay longer. Why? Because they like living life the way they're living it, because they love the community that they're in. That's the long-term solution to addiction. It's connection. It's learning to live life in a healthy way. And so programs or, uh, or offerings that are long enough to give people a chance to do that and that focus on dealing with normal, real life in a better way, I think are the ones that are most likely to help. And so if, if people do want to know more information or they're point people in that direction or a family who's, who's struggling with an addict in their, in their family, where would you send them? And how does that, how does it work uh, as far as the first steps? They're at the other side Academy. You can go to the other side and it'll give you all the information about the program and how it works and who it's for and so on. And you're welcome to call as well and ask any of the staff. All the staff are just graduates of the Other Side Academy. It's a peer program. And, uh, and so that's a terrific place to start. And again, from a gospel perspective, at least uh, as far as what I have to share, the book Moroni's War on Addiction, I think, uh, shares uh, a lot of the hard-earned lessons that my wife and I got from this experience as well and continue to get as yeah. we now have hundreds of people in our lives that struggle. Yeah. Is there anything else you could share from the perspective of, of parents of a, of a teenager who's an addict? Because, I mean, is it the same type of thing that can you send a teenager out on the streets or is it the same tough love or is it a different approach until they, maybe they get older? Yeah, you have a different responsibility to a teen, obviously, because you are responsible financially and legally and so forth for them. Mm -hmm. So, no, I would not be kicking them out of the house and saying, go live on the street. But if my son commits a crime, I, we explained this to him all along, we're law-abiding family. So if you're buying illegal drugs, we're calling the police. It's going to happen every single time. So, you know, just don't be shocked. Don't act offended. Don't act, you know, because we obey the law. You may choose not to, but we do. And so that was fairly straightforward. So any of the consequences that they're capable of experiencing of the choices that they make, like not being trusted. You know, kids will often throw in your face. And when you're becoming a, an, an addict manipulator, you're really good at, at trying to play the trust and respect card. I've been clean for a month. I've been following all the rules. So why don't you trust me anymore? Why are you watching me all of the time? Why can't I go out with my friends? And, and, and the answer needs to be because I don't trust you. Because, you know, and, and we need to be unapologetic about that. The fact is that I go to sleep at night wondering about what kind of dishonest thing are you still going to do? I want to trust you. And trust me, as, as soon as you give me evidence that you're doing 
really hard things to regain that trust, I will. So we need to be good at letting them experience the natural consequences of the choices they make. And uh, lack of trust, a lack of privileges, a lack of resources in the home, and and many of these other things are natural consequences of of you not being a fully fledged member of this household. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really helpful. Well, any other concept or point that we didn't touch on, or we covered all? I think we've covered a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's I think right. that's what I got for now. Plenty to yeah. plenty to absorb. Yeah, and obviously you can check out the the book that you put together. And all proceeds, like you said, go to the uh, over other side academy. And man, I've I've loved that resource and, and learning about the other side academy. They even helped me move a few years ago with the other side movers company that's involved there. And so it's just cool to see the change in individuals and it really witnesses of Jesus Christ. So thank you, Joseph, for for taking the time. And I'm excited to to share this this message. Thank you. Appreciate it, Kurt. And. Uh... My prayers and best wishes for all who are listening as well. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And remember, visit leadingsaints.org slash recovering or click the link in the show notes to attend this virtual conference for free. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.